Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. And welcome to this Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio for this last day of 2020. I'm Paul Perot, Carmen's producer, and I'm sure you'll agree that 2020 has been one of the most challenging years of our lives. And if you've been listening this holiday week, we've been featuring some of our top conversations from this past year. Many of those conversations tie into what we've experienced this year with a view of applying the mind of Christ to these issues. All of Carmen's conversations from the show are found on the Mornings with Carmen show page at MyFaithRadio.com. Now, before we get to our first conversation with David French, as Carmen will often say, where in the word are you? And this past year, I've been enjoying the classical devotion Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. His chosen verse this morning is from John chapter 7, verse 37. It reads, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now, the feast that's talked about here is not New Year's or anything like that. No, it's the Feast of Tabernacles or Ingathering. And Jesus made his statement on the final day of that seven-day festival. And while much of 2020 has been anything but festive, I I think the invitation is still very important to us. Here's what Spurgeon wrote in part. Thirst is terrible, but Jesus can remove it. Though the soul were utterly famished, Jesus could restore it. Proclamation is made most freely that every thirsty one is welcome. No other distinction is made but that of thirst, whether it be the thirst of avarice, ambition, pleasure, knowledge, or rest, he who suffers from it is invited. Spurgeon continues, the sinner must come to Jesus, not to works, ordinances, or doctrines, but to a personal redeemer, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. The bleeding, dying, rising Savior is the only star of hope to a sinner. Oh, for grace to come now and drink before the sun sets upon this year's last day. No waiting or preparation is so much as hinted at. Drinking represents a reception for which no fitness is required. Dear reader, and I say to us too, hear the dear Redeemer's loving voice as he cries to each of us, if anyone thirst, let him or her come to me and drink. May he refresh you today and in the year ahead. Well, again, this is a special best of edition of Mornings with Carmen. And up next, if 2020 has showed us anything, we here in the U.S. are in a very divided nation. But do we understand what is really dividing us? And how can we as Christ followers be a healing and mending force for our country? We'll hear Carmen's conversation with David French next from this past September as Mornings with Carmen continues on Faith Radio.
joining me now, David French. Um, I could spend all of my time reading his resume, or I could just direct you to thedispatch.com. We're going to talk today about David's book, Divided We Fall. David French, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. I love the French press. I love the dispatch. Uh, and this is an excellent book, although it's really scary. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 a kind of book because what it maps out as a possibility is kind of so bad that if somebody says great book, uh, you wonder, like, did they uh, read it? I, I appreciate I appreciate it. But um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When well, a pastor awesome. preaches a sermon that's like prophetic and should have like scorched you and you walk out and you're like, oh, pastor, great sermon. They pretty much know it didn't pierce. It didn't penetrate. This right. book includes um, these very plausible scenarios of how the United States could, in fact, fracture, um, not only weakening our nation, but destabilizing the world. And yet it also casts a really positive vision of how we could, would we find ourselves willing to do so, um, be, be people who actually sort of return to classical pluralism, demonstrating true tolerance. Like, we do have a way forward. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, the founding fathers were not perfect people, but they did put together a blueprint for how a uh, really diverse, large country. I mean, I mean diverse on every direction, whether it's religiously diverse, racially diverse, ideologically diverse. They did put together a blueprint as to how a nation like our nation stays together. And one of the things that I point out in the book, one of our problems we have is we've been spending years and years and years diverting from that blueprint, from intentionally forsaking that blueprint. And one of the problems we have in this country is that we are increasingly centralizing power at the exact same time that we're becoming a more diverse people. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And, you know, it's easy to sort of say, well, every single election, we call it the most important election of, of our lifetimes. But one of the problems we have is because we've centralized power so much, it's not that every election is the most important in our lifetimes. We often don't know that until hindsight. But what's happening is we're electing the most powerful president, uh, civilian, I mean, uh, um, peacetime president in American history every four years because of how much we're centralizing power in that president's hands. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, right now and in 2016, people are so in such a frenzy and so angry about presidential elections. Some of the um, some of the concepts in the book I mean, I think there, it's very easily, very easy to apprehend what you're talking about if we allow ourselves to be humble enough to see, see ourselves in right. it um, and not become immediately defensive and want to throw it through the closest window. Um, you talk, <laughs> well, because you do, you talk about polarized tribalism and in that yeah. you really call us all out. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I want people to understand, because this book is not a book that's designed to give you talking points to, like, own the libs or own the conservatives. It's saying this is I'm trying to outline this is what is actually happening in this country. Mm -hmm. And what's actually happening are two sides, red and blue, are building a narrative about the other side that is really scary and bad. And if you're conservative and you read the book and you you'll read, there's a section in the in the very first chapter where I sort of lay out here is how lots of people on the left think about conservatives. And you'll read it and you'll say, that's ridiculous. That's unfair. 
and then you'll read the part of what conservatives think about um, uh, all too many liberals, and you'll say, yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. That's what those people are like. And But the problem is that we – the problem that I lay out is we have those two narratives, and because we are separating geographically, more people are living with others of like mind than any time in recent American history – and because we're becoming more extreme, one thing that happens when people of like mind gather is we get more extreme. And because our political class, the people who pay the most attention to politics, are the most – and this is the, some of the crazy research I, I discovered in researching for the book. The people who follow politics the most – the closest, they are the people who are most likely to be wrong about their political opponents. They believe their political opponents are more extreme than they really are. And so a lot of that cable news that you watch or a lot of the Twitter feed you scroll through or the talk radio that you listen to, not this program, of course, but a lot of that that you listen to or read is just wrong and is inflating the threat from your political opponents. And so all those things together work to make us uh, siloed in our own communities increasingly angry and fearful of the other side and increasingly convinced that the other side is full of terrible people who do terrible things. Yeah, I like the um, observation that we tend to, uh, I mean, you give great statistics on all of these things throughout the book, but, you know, we tend to live in like-minded geographic enclaves. Um, we tend to spend our time with like-minded people. Uh, I, I make the observation here that um, both Antonin Scalia and now Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. who were dear friends who could not have been further apart from one another ideologically, but were honest to goodness, dear, dear friends. It is hard to imagine um, that kind of ideological, uh, ideologically divided individuals, let's say, going to bat for one another in this uh, in this next cycle of Supreme Court nominations. I, I'm going to be really surprised if somebody on the extreme left in terms of their understanding of the way the Constitution should be applied today um, at the highest level of the court comes forward to advocate for whoever President Trump's nominee is. Like, I, it, it's just it's just likely not going to happen, even if they really are good friends behind the scenes. It's political suicide to come forward and say so. You know, it's gotten so bad. It's not just political suicide. It's a personal risk. Um, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand, uh, if you're not d heavily involved in politics, if you're not, if this isn't something that you really are focused on on a daily basis, it's often difficult for people to understand how toxic it becomes if you cross tribal lines at all. You know, one of the things is when the two sides are sort of locked in this existential struggle, what's so very important is sort of internal discipline and unity. Um, and so, you know, it's it's funny if you take if you sort of look at what cancel culture is, because uh, we're all familiar with with cancel culture. A lot of the time and when you look at cancel culture, it's blue on blue or red on red. And what it's aimed at are people who are not sufficiently with the tribe, people who are not sufficiently radical and uh, and so what you end up happening is incredible social pressure to be part of the tribe. And if you don't do it, especially if you're a public figure, you'll face you'll face something much worse than ridicule. You'll often face threats uh, to your life, threats to your family. That's how bad things are getting. And so what ends 
what ends up happening is people who are uncomfortable with the polarization will often choose to be quiet. Um, I tell people that uh, people will talk to me when they read a piece where I'm talking about this and I'm very and I'm I'm calling out this tendency. I will sometimes have people walk up to me, <laughs> kind of look around and very quietly say, I agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. But I agree with you publicly every day. So, um, all right, <laughs> well, we got to take a we got to take a very brief break. I'm talking with David French. If you don't already uh, follow what he's writing, um, let me invite you to thedispatch.com. Um, I'm pretty sure if you go there today, you can still jump in on the larger extended conversation they're going to have about the book, Divided We Fall. Yes. Um, we're going to have a brief conversation about it here today. But if you go to thedispatch.com, you can actually get in on a, a larger conversation about the book. Um, and also, we've got some copies to give away. So if you're listening right now and you're like, I I don't want to be the person who's forced to the sidelines in silence. I actually want to be a person um, who helps to positively move the conversation forward. I'm ready um, to embla- embrace pluralism in the right way. I just need somebody to help me do it. Um, this is the book for you. So go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Thank you to St. Martin's Press for supplying us with copies to give away today, which is book launch day for um, for David French's Divided We Fall. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Continuing my conversation with David French. You ought to check out The Dispatch. It's at thedispatch.com. We are talking today uh, about David's brand new book, just launched, Divided We Fall. Um, we're talking about the the threat that, you know what, America could actually no longer be a union, Like right? We could become a fractured uh, political right. body. Um, and then you talk about then how to restore the nation. Let's talk a little bit about the positive vision. I mean, you know, I've got a listener who um, wants to take the contrarian position and say, hey, isn't advancing pluralism just elitist speak for surrendering your convictions? We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's uh, let's talk about the positive vision first. How do we go about walking humbly into a future filled with hope? Yeah, what we need to do, there, there's two things. One, there's an individual, the, the, the founders created a system that gives us, as individuals and as communities, the ability to live our lives according to our values, our, most, our deepest values. As individuals, that's protected in the Bill of Rights. That's the free speech and the religious liberty and the protections of the due process and all of those things that we often take for granted as Americans, and we do to some greater or lesser degree, we do a pretty good job with that. That's critical from an individual basis. But what I point out is, and this is something that Matt, uh, James Madison talked about in Federalist Number 10, if you want to avoid the violence of faction, if you want to avoid that, that those forces that will rip a country apart, uh, you need to have a a system and a structure that allows different communities to live according to their values. And that's federalism. That's the, the force that is against the centralization of the time. And that's the answer to the gentleman who said, this is just surrender. Well, if you have centralization, then it is a zero-sum game. Then it's one side or the other is going to have power, and it's going to be swapped back and forth every four or eight years or sometimes less than that, depending on Congress's composition. And you get into this just 
kind of deathmatch struggle that we're in. But when you have federalism, California, uh, communities in California can live according to their values. In Tennessee, where I live, you can live according to your values. And you can have, you, you break out of the zero-sum game. Uh, and one of the things that I think people who are deep partisans need to understand is they keep laboring under the misimpression that they can beat their enemies, that they can end this all, that one day they're going to triumph. No, they can't do it because what's happened is our because our, we're so closely divided and because our system is set up to prevent one side or the other gaining sort of dom the dominant position. We have this counter-majoritarianism in the Constitution. That means that unless we can figure out a way to accommodate, the effort to dominate is going to destroy. And so that's the key. And the problem we have is right now, no people will pay lip service to federalism. They'll say, hey, I love federalism, but they'll do that when they're out of power. When they're in power then they're all about power. And that's this one of the cycles that's really making things difficult for this country. This uh, reminds me of a conversation a generation ago um, about a group of people who were in control of, of a, a very large organization at the time, and I was a part of a group seeking to bring renewal to that organization. Mm. And uh, at the end of a meeting, one of the sort of elder statesmen in the room sort of asked me if I'd wait you know, wait behind. And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't, I don't think that you understand the, the people in this room. They just want the jobs of those other people. They don't actually want yeah. the sort of renewal that you're suggesting. They just yeah. want to be in control of the institution. And I it's just, that's so disheartening. This is not about just beating somebody else down so that we can have, you know, I don't know, bigger platforms um, and more control, more command and control. This is so that we, as the people of the United States of America, can actually live into the realities that the that the founders envisioned. I mean, this is this is about us all being better Americans, better at being American. Yeah, exactly. This is this is essentially saying, look, I have I don't have to dominate the government to have a home here. But if mm. what we're having is a situation where power gets so centralized that people begin to fear that they have to dominate the government to have a home here we're lost. We're just lost because that effort to dominate and that effort to exclude, and this is something that I point out in the book, that effort to dominate and that effort to exclude rips big countries apart, in part because you cannot dominate people out of their deepest beliefs. You, if you, What ends up happening is you create separatism. You create a desire to leave. You know, I go back to 1776 and you know, look, um, the, the people of Great Britain were far more numerous than the people of the colonies, and Great Britain itself was far more powerful than the people of the colonies, but the people of the colonies didn't want to be dominated. This is, a, this is a human impulse. You don't want to be dominated. And if you feel like the democratic process is not yielding the protections that you need, if you feel like the democratic process is breaking to such an extent that it's not going to uh, it's not going to protect your most fundamental rights, then people start to think of other alternatives. And and one of the problems we have, how many times are we going to hear between now and 2020, for example, people will say America will be over. America will be over <laughs> mm -hmm. if we lose. 
Well, you know, some of that rhetoric rhetoric is pretty cynical and exploitive because no, they don't really believe it. But a lot of people believe it. And when you start mm-hmm. to feel desperate, uh, we can't sit there and say, well, OK, we'll just every four years run it back the same. And every four years we'll say America will be over and nobody will really believe it. They'll know we're sort of playing political games, but they won't really act on it. Uh, but what we're seeing, the violence in the streets, the division in people's hearts, the hatred that's being expressed across this country, you're seeing the effects of that, and it can't keep going. We can't take our country for granted. David French, um, thank you so very much. Um, can I can I spend 30 seconds praying for you and Nancy and your family? Please do. I'd appreciate that. Father, I thank you for my brother David. I thank you for my sister Nancy and their precious family. I ask that you continue to place a hedge of protection around them as they continue to live out the gospel um, in ways that honor Jesus. Thank you for this opportunity to talk with David today and bless him in the interviews that he has ahead um, on the launch day of this book. Amen. David, thank you so much. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Likewise. All right, friends, we'll be right back. Well, thanks again for listening to this Best of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio for this last day of 2020. I'm Paul Perot, and as we've been doing this week, we're enjoying some of Carmen's top conversations from this past year. You know, we're called to love our neighbors, and as you remember, Jesus illustrated that by the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan helped the person in need who, through circumstances, was brought into his life. This brings up the question, who has God brought through circumstances into your life? Those who live in proximity to you, your neighborhood, your community, the town you live in. There's an organization called the Hopeful Neighborhood Project, which seeks to equip Christians and churches to work for the well-being of their neighborhoods. Well, this fall, they released a book called The Hopeful Neighborhood. Carmen's conversation with Don Everts is coming your way in about five minutes, so stay with us. This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. When he was a kid, attending church was a no-brainer. But now he's a teenager. Getting him there comes down to a standoff between parent and son, seeing whose will is going to break first. What's a parent to do? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. As always, I encourage parents to look for the root of the problem. Have an honest conversation with your teen about why he doesn't like going to church. Does he think it's irrelevant? Take him on a mission trip so he can see firsthand God's transforming work. With an accurate diagnosis, you'll be better equipped to meet his needs. It won't be easy, and it'll take persistence. But with God's help, you can reach the heart of your teen when it comes to more important issues like church. On Facebook, find Mark Gregston's page and look for parenting tips there, or online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, uh, one of my favorite people to talk with, it's Don Everts. You can find him, um, well, kind of all over the place. He's an author. Um, I am going to recommend that you check out what he's doing at hopefulneighborhood.org. 
Um, but you can also find him on the Twitters at Don Everts. You can find him at Lutheran Hour Ministries at lhm.org. Don, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be with you, Carmen. I love the intro music. That was great. Right, right. Paul will work you up a whole neighborhood <laughs> playlist if you want. Montage. Paul's, Wonderful. Yeah, he's really good at that. Really good. Okay, um, first of all, I um, I love this project, not just a book, but a project. And so really want to encourage people to check out hopefulneighborhood.org. Tell us about the Hopeful Neighborhood Project, and then we'll talk about the book. Yeah, so the project is basically, you know, for, for, from our research that we did on how Christians are relating with their neighborhoods. That's kind of this research project we did with Barna. And part of what it revealed is that, boy, uh, this is a great part of the Christian legacy. Uh, a part, a, a keynote of Christians for 2,000 years has been to be salt and light right where we live and, and to be a blessing to the people in place right around us. And the research reveals maybe we're not doing that as much as we used to. And so the Hopeful Neighborhood Project is about hope. It's about helping people figure out how to make a difference and and have agency as Christians right where they live. So it's it's about the hyper-local. It's about loving neighbors, just like the song said. Uh, and, and because not only does that make a difference as we pursue the common good of the communities we live in, the neighborhoods we live in, but history tells us and scripture reveals to us that that will actually attract people to the gospel. So... Um... I love, as a part of uh, what you have posted at um, at the neighborhood project.org, mm-hmm. you have this neighborhood gift inventory. This is yes. maybe one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. So can you can you tell people what this is? Because this is really cool. Yeah. You know, the whole idea is if we're going to pursue the common good of our neighborhood, the place to start is not by looking at, well, what are the problems or what annoys me? You know, that sort of thing. Or what's worked in other neighborhoods. But it's to start by looking and saying, what gifts are already here in the neighborhood? That we believe that God is, is a giver of gifts, that every, every human around us is a gift with gifts to share. And there are gifts in the environment around us, in, in, the, in the associations, the businesses, etc. And so we're just encouraging people. We've developed this three-step process, very simple that anyone can do. But the process begins with curiosity in saying, what are the gifts that God has already put in the neighborhood? Who are my neighbors? What are the gifts they have? Uh, what, what are the gifts in the environment? What are the parks, the associations, the clubs, the churches, etc.? That, that are already there. And what we've found and, and, and what people uh, have been finding for, for centuries is that when you look and say, what has God already put here? Then when you start by looking at those gifts, boy, you, you, you've got a head start on pursuing the common good, on making a difference in the neighborhood. So that assessment you're talking about, it's a simple tool that can help people look at their own neighborhood with new eyes. You know, a lot of us a lot of us are like me, and I'll just confess, Carmen, uh, I, for, for a long time I've been living above place, meaning I'm living my life without any meaningful connection with the neighborhood I live in, the place and people right around me. And, and the inventory you're talking about is a simple tool. It's like a, a, a pair of glasses someone can put on to look around their neighborhood and realize, man, God has blessed this neighborhood, and how can we use those gifts uh, for the good of the neighborhood. So that gets us to this conversation about the common good. You've used that phrase a couple of times. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, let me remind people that I'm talking with Don Everts. You can check out what we're talking about today at 
hopefulneighborhood.org. We're also going to be talking about the book, The Hopeful Neighborhood, which maybe is the launch into this conversation because you do start off talking about the common good. What is the common good and why should I be concerned about pursuing it? Great question. The common good, in short, is the well-being or flourishing of everything in a place. Uh, and, and, And the reason that we as Christians in particular should be concerned about pursuing the common good and, and, and pursuing the flourishing or well-being of the place and people around us is because God calls us to, right? So three touch points in the Bible really quick. In, in, in the garden at the beginning, God created humans and he said, I created you to care for the place where you are. That, that, that was part of our creation mandate that didn't go away when we got kicked out of the garden. Uh, think about the Israelites when they were in Babylon, right? They're, they're the visiting team. They're, they're not at home anymore. They just want to escape or survive. And God says, no. He sends a letter through Jeremiah that says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. The, the translation there is that Hebrew word shalom, the, the flourishing, the well-being of the place. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus calls his people to do the same, be salt and light. Peter's writing a letter to exiles in Asia Minor. And what does he say to them? The same thing Jeremiah said. He says, I know you're the visiting team. I know you're taking it on the chin. I know that doesn't feel good. But what you are called to do is to do good, pursue shalom, uh, the welfare of the people in place right around you. So that's why it should matter. And, And especially for Christians who believe in the gospel and want other people to be attracted to the gospel, one of the things church history shows us, Carmen, is that when Christians are pursuing the common good, when when we are being a blessing in really tangible ways, people notice. The the one of the early Christian historians said that the early Christians had eloquent behavior. The mm. way they behaved said something and proclaimed something. And and many scholars say that's why the church grew as it did. It grew because Christians were hopefully pursuing the common good of the place around them during pandemics. You know, think of all the harsh situations they faced. They loved, they they lifted up the people around them. And that was a way of proclaiming the gospel indeed. And that attracts people to the gospel. So there's a couple of reasons why we should, as Christians, care about pursuing the common good. And, and for 2,000 years, we have. And we've, we've maybe lost sight of it a little bit in recent years, but uh, we believe that the time has returned for us to reclaim this part of the Christian faith. All right, I'm talking with Don Everts. We are talking about... The Hopeful Neighborhood, the book and the project. You can find it all at hopefulneighborhood.org. Don, um, let's um let's let's give people a little taste of this. Um mm-hmm. uh, let's let's do a little uh practical um excerpt here. So Wonderful. lead us into like how might I do this? How do I get my thoughts? Mm-hmm. How do I get my thoughts redirected to my own neighborhoods? This is like positive triggering. How do I get my brain to fire off in the right direction? Yeah, great idea. You know, and and where we recommend everyone begins is by discovering the gifts of their neighborhood. And so it's by becoming curious. So curiosity, that's a fun place to start, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so how do you be curious about your neighbors? Uh, about what's in your neighborhood. So one of the things that we find uh, is that 
a lot of people don't know their neighbors <laughs> or they know them a little bit, but not enough to know, boy, this is my neighbor and here's what they're really good at and the gifts that they bring. And so we have a variety of tools, uh, a, a kind of an online process that people can do. But on a really practical level, uh, we have ideas for how people can get to know their neighbors. Just just starting there. Uh, just crossing the lawn, talking to their neighbors more. We have uh, the inventory you talked about, uh, the neighborhood inventory. We, we know people who have taken the inventory and not just you know, sat down as a solo exercise, but they've gone to their neighbors and said, hey, I, I'm wanting to be more curious about our neighborhood. Would you do that with me? Because some of these questions on this inventory, I don't have answers to. You've lived here longer than I have. Could you help me do that? So, so there we have like using a little tool that helps you ask new questions about where you live and kind of see it with new eyes. Uh, be, because we all become home blind to the things we see every day. We, we stop noticing the details. But also doing it in a way that is relational and, and building relationships. And, and the, the beautiful thing, Carmen, the Hopeful Neighborhood Project is for Christians and non-Christians, right? It, does, it doesn't matter your creed. You can pursue the common good. And well, that's so we good because really... my, my neighborhood is not all Christians. Exactly. So it's good, right? It's good that the Neighborhood Project, like, helps me see that, understand that. Um, yes. I mean, one of the things that I just think is critical for us to recognize as Christians, like I'm not inviting a new Muslim family um, to have ham at my house uh, on Easter. <laughs> like, right? That is not, not loving my neighbor. That's right. Like that's going to be that's the right. first clue that I have not been a student of who they are. That's a great way of putting it. How, how do we become students of the, the people who are right around us. And the, the beautiful thing about that is it helps us build bridges. And so the book you've mentioned is for Christians. We get into the Bible, we get into church history, we get into embarrassing stories from my life. Uh, we get into the research to help Christians reorient and reclaim this part of their faith. But everything on the website, every, the online process for the Hopeful Neighborhood Project uh, is is also non-Christian friendly. So a lot of the theological stuff is taken out because we want to see Christians stand shoulder to shoulder with their non-Christian neighbors and make a difference together. That, there's something extraordinarily bonding about that. It will change, help us reclaim our reputation uh, in this country. Uh, it will help us build bridges with non-Christians. You know, and you know, Carmen, I do a lot of evangelism training, right? Mm-hmm. One of the big things that a lot of that barriers for churches and Christians to share the good news is they don't have any friends who are non-Christians. Well, this is th- this is a win-win, right? We can pursue the common good with our non-Christian neighbors and at the same time build bridges that can help us gain a hearing that if the Holy Spirit moves, actually they're going to become more curious. Why are you so positive? Why are you doing this in your life? And boom, what do you know? That a door is open for us to talk about the hope that is within us. So, Don, um, one of the things I'm aware of is that something like 16 million people have moved during the pandemic. I know that that is true on my yeah. own street. I have new yes. neighbors who, whom I have yeah. not met. I have seen them walking, yeah. um, and we have said, who is that? Where do they live? Like, what's going on? We wave. I'm waving, but it's COVID. Yeah. So it's not like I'm stopping and rolling down my window and right. saying, hey, you know, welcome to the stroke. So I do think that part of what you're offering us is a way to engage our changing neighborhood. It's a. It's offering yes. us ways to look at ourselves um, and re-engage. We all want to do that. We all have a heart to do that. We just don't know how. And you have um, really, again, adeptly provided 
uh, resources for us online and in the book that they're, it's very tangible. It's very concrete. Get out a map. Draw a circle around what you consider yeah. to be your neighborhood. Do some research about your neighborhood. Um, start a journal. Um, add a neighborhood section to your prayer rhythm. Prayer walk your neighborhood. I mean, on and on and on. Just such great, just like simple, really simple, but very tangible. Like, I can do this. I can do yeah. this. Um, it's right. not. It's not as scary as, you know— Okay, Carmen, you have to stand at the end of your driveway and proclaim Jesus, um, you know, because that's the way we do evangelism. No, no, we love our neighbors. Like, let's love them, and they will grow curious as to what we're doing and why we're doing it the way we're doing it, and they will ask questions, and we will invite them into our homes, and we will break bread together, and we will have fellowship, and they will see that Christians aren't totally creepy, and we will get to know one another, and in those relationships, right, the gospel will be evident because that's who we are. It's who we are. And what you've just described, Carmen, so well is hopeful. Right? It be, be, right? Because we can do something. And yes, our culture has changed. And yes, maybe we're the visiting team now as Christians. Okay. What can we do about that? What can we do that's hopeful uh, in the midst of our situation? And everything you just described, that's why we called it the Hopeful Neighborhood Project, because it is about hope. And we are people of hope. Uh, you know, the, the, the Israelites uh, in Babylon in exile, they, they could have just said, man, I, you know, it's terrible that now we live in Babylon in this terrible place. And and they could have circled their wagons. They could have curled in on themselves, as Luther put it. But they didn't, because God said, no, I want you to seek the welfare of the city right where you are. Sa- same thing with the early Christians uh, in Asia Minor. You know, pandemics come through, and they, they, they could have just curled in and, and, and hid away from everyone. But they didn't. They, they found ways to love people in tangible ways. And like you said, Carmen— it starts with small things, and 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 it's amazing right now because a lot of us are spending more time in our neighborhoods than we previously have. Right? Mm-hmm, we're not absolutely. commuting as much as we are. We're we're many of us are working from home. You know, I'm officing from home right now. I've seen more. I've spent more time in my neighborhood in the last nine, seven months uh, than maybe the last seven years. I don't, maybe that's an exaggeration, but. We're spending more time in our neighborhoods. What an opportunity for us to not just survive this time or get through it and, and, and miss our Christian friends, but to say, I'm going to make some new friends who, who are different than me, and, and we're going we're gonna to make a positive difference together. And, and who knows what doors that could open for the gospel. That was Carmen's conversation with Don Evert from The Hopeful Neighborhood Project, and the book is called The Hopeful Neighborhood. Mornings with Carmen continues in just a moment. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. In the middle of the war, you guard my soul. You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn. Well, again, thanks for spending time with us on this last day of 2020, a special best of edition of Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot, Carmen's producer, and we've been featuring several of the best conversations from this past year over the last few days. And if you're a regular listener, you know that along with many of these special conversations, we also have regular weekly and biweekly guests, experts who, like Carmen, seek to connect God into the conversations of the day. Now, among them is Ben Johnson, who is one of the editors at the Acton Institute, who has the nickname The Rights Writer. 
We talk a lot about human, economic, and religious rights almost every Thursday. In the discussion about these rights, Ben would point out that we need to have common understanding of foundational truths. But as we listen to this portion of a conversation Carmen had with him on October 1st, that common understanding has been deeply eroded. The details of whether they're, what they're doing is moral or immoral don't particularly enter their mind because they have a new set of moral principles that have replaced the old ones. You know, in England, 25% of school children can't name one Ten Commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, not a single one, including thou shalt not kill. That's a little petrifying. They're more secular than we are, but we're on that same trajectory here in the United States where the moral principles that guided all of the uh, institutions that we have are under assault. That's a problem because our common law and our, our constitution, all of our institutions were founded on the idea that you didn't have to be a Christian or a person of faith in order to participate in them, but that the understanding of how they work and function presupposes a people who are moral and virtuous and religious, and they value things like truth, like community. They value things like dealing honestly and fairly. And our entire First Amendment was based on the idea that truth and falsehood can fight it out the public arena, and truth will always win if people are exposed to both sides. People will have the common sense and the good grace to choose what is correct. And increasingly, that proposition has been discarded in favor of uh, this sort of politics uberales, my uh, will to power forsaking any kind of moral dealing with my fellow human beings. That's how we become a more violent society. It's not how we become a more perfect union. Again, that was Ben Johnson of the Acton Institute, one of our regular guests on Mornings with Carmen. We try to have good, meaty discussions on our show every weekday morning to help you thoughtfully apply the mind of Christ to the issues of the day. And we're able to do this every weekday thanks to your support. Again, this is the last day of the year, and if you're doing special end-of-year giving, would you consider a generous tax-deductible gift to Faith Radio right now? You can make that gift at MyFaithRadio.com or call 877-933-2484. Again, the website, MyFaithRadio.com. Plus, today when you visit the website, you'll notice that tonight, starting at 7 o'clock Central, Carmen will be hosting a special end-of-year live stream event as she shares strength for today and hope for all our tomorrows in 2021 and beyond. That's tonight on Faith Radio's YouTube and Facebook channels. Again, more information at MyFaithRadio.com. Stay with us. We have another hour of Mornings with Carmen straight ahead. And during it, we're going to take a look back at the top theological news stories of the year gone by, plus challenge you to consider how you're being discipled and by whom. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.